athletes and coaches often think about recovery as having like a gas pedal, basically that somehow you could just like rev up the recovery process and magically you're going to accelerate the time that it takes for you to be back training and, and feeling good again. And worse, I think most of the time an athlete's uh, mental framework for processing and thinking about uh, the recovery process is very, you know, single dimensional in the fact that they're, they say like, oh, my body feels recovered. Uh, you know, the, the truth is that our body will bias different systems based on the type of training that you're doing. And each of those systems is going to have its own timeline for recovery. The rate of recovery for different systems takes different uh, lengths of time, whether that's, you know, central fatigue accumulation, muscle tissue damage, joint irritation and inflammation, glycogen depletion, metabolite buildup, blood volume reduction, you know, substrate storage, and I could go on and on. Uh, you know, you really can't ice, cup, shock, uh, wish your way back to uh, feeling we're getting into a, like a state of readiness uh, to train, you know, following intelligent training principles, eating and sleeping will always be far and away the, the highest leverage handles, so to speak, uh, to pull on. It's time we rethink recovery as maximizing systems. The fitness movement is brought to you by Zor Fitness. We offer coaching and individualized program design, as well as educational content for coaches and athletes. It's all at one place, ZorFitness.com. And welcome back to my rant on rethinking recovery. So part one of this is going to be on the systems that are actually going to be impacted. Um, so like I mentioned before, like the nervous system, like muscles, like joints. Part two is gonna be how we can monitor recovery. And then part three is going to be how we can actually improve or potentially accelerate the recovery process. Okay, first of all, is the systems that are actually being impacted. So I'm going to kind of go through a rough timeline. This doesn't have to be exact, but it kind of gives you people, again, a, a mental framework to sort of follow. Systems that are going to be the quickest to recover to systems that are going to be the slowest to recover. Generally speaking, again, this is going to change based on the type of training that you're actually doing. One would be metabolites. So this is uh, the buildup of metabolic waste products. So in other words, if you're doing unsustainable work, you're working above critical torque, which is basically all the movements within CrossFit, you are accumulating fatigue as you do that. So you're having more anaerobic metabolism, more glycolytic contractions that are taking place. It's going to take time to have that cleared out of uh, a muscle, for example. Next would be thermoregulation. So I talked about this in episode 59. Um, if you want to hear a lot more about heating and cooling the body and how to think about that and how it's going to impact performance. But basically understand that when you're exercising, there's going to be limitations in, with your body to uh, heat, but in particularly to cool yourself um, and just preserve. Like that, That's the goal of your body is to preserve yourself and to make sure that you're not spilling over too much and that you're not going beyond sort of a, a critical a threshold. So it's going to take some time for you to get back to homeostasis, get back to uh, the core temperature that you sort of like to be in, so to speak. Uh, next would be state. I, I talked about this more in episode number eight, shift state. Uh, but here I'm referring to 
uh, sympathetic versus parasympathetic nervous system input. So what amount of sort of the flight or fight response are you in? People have probably heard of uh, gas, which is the general adaptation syndrome, but uh, there's limitations in, in that um, model. But basically, we need to understand there's limited opportunities for an athlete or just a human being to spike their adrenaline and cortisol without there being basically severe consequences to do that. It's always an option or usually there's an option to continue to push through, right? It's it's much easier to make yourself work through being tired than it is to make yourself fall asleep, for example. It's much easier to cue the sympathetic nervous system than it is the parasympathetic nervous system. So we need to make sure that we're diligent about how often we go there, so to speak, with our training. And that also we're, we're balancing that with other types of parasympathetic activities, which is basically just like chill out and make sure that you're, you're not overdoing it. So again, we can always push through, but it's, it's a costly thing to do. And you should be cognizant about how often you're doing that in your training and how quickly we can return to a more parasympathetic state after training. Next would be hydration. So this is obviously the amount of water that's in your body, but also electrolytes are a very important part of this. So if you have a deficiency in an electrolyte, it might it basically inhibit your ability to contract a muscle hard or to relax that muscle. Um, a lot of cell functioning is really important in, for uh, electrolytes in particular. But also something to think about is the amount of blood volume you have. This is where it's just about like the amount of uh, fluid that you're actually taking in. If you get below a certain threshold, that's really going to start to impact how your heart functions in particular. Obviously, it's going to impact muscles as well. But uh, the, the less blood volume that you have because you're dehydrated and there's literally less water going through uh, your circulatory system, essentially, that that's going to impact uh, how much cardiac preload you have. So in other words, how much your heart is getting stretched um, when you're actually filling it up with blood and it's going to impact your, your cardiac output. So how much your heart is actually able to put out per beat, which ultimately is just going to have your performance essentially wane when it's a high metabolic work rate activities, like a lot of crossover workouts are. So obviously hydration is going to be important. Glycogen depletion. So this is substrate. It's what your body's actually using for fuel. Your muscles and your brain prefer and run best on sugar. <laughs> uh, it's definitely an important reminder for some people. Next, I would say would be joint irritation and inflammation. So this is, you know, what you think about like swelling uh, it's just, you know, you could think of it as like the immune response oftentimes, um, but this also impacts things like pain, which are going to uh, change an, an athlete's motivation, like your, your just like willingness to go back and do another session if you're in uh, mechanical uh, pain and if you like don't feel like you can get in great positions. But then also I would say it's going to impact like subconsciously your ability to basically create tension uh, through through a muscle or through a a a chain of muscles like kinetic chain next is muscle damage and basically you can think of it as the more damage that you sustain to a muscle the less contractile strength and force potential you're going to have in that muscle so there's going to be more disruption to things like ion signaling um, especially like if you're getting a lot of eccentric contractions especially so lengthening and catching phases of lifts um, and movements that's what's going to create the most damage versus concentric so like the actual lifting phase or an isometric like a holding or a carrying uh, of an object um 
where the muscle is basically staying at a fixed length the whole time, those are much less uh, expensive, so to speak, than eccentric contractions in terms of uh, muscular damage. So that's certainly one thing to think about. I'd also think about, you know, if if a muscle is like slow versus fast switch or how you're biasing that in your training is certainly going to impact how quickly it takes to repair. And, you know, that can be just tied to things as simple as like low versus high vascularity in a muscle group. So if you don't have a lot of blood flow to a muscle group, it's going to take longer uh, for that to recover. Whereas if it's got a lot of blood vessels in it and there's a lot of networks there, there's more opportunities essentially for your body to clear out waste and to bring in like more materials to the work site essentially is an easy way to think about it. And lastly, things as simple as like whether you're doing work in a lengthened versus shortened position. So if you're doing a lot of eccentric contractions that are in a lengthened position, that's going to create a lot of damage. So in particular, things like, you know, deficit RDLs, for example, or like a GHD would be a great example because you're laying back and you're, you're going into basically a hyperextended, super lengthened position that often creates way more DOMS because of that delayed onset muscle soreness. So it's an important thing to kind of monitor and just sort of pay attention to. And it's something that if you're in training, you can manipulate. Again, competing is its own thing. But in terms of training, these are all factors that you can start to manipulate and start and at least be aware of and think about. Lastly, would be central fatigue. So, you know, I would say like obviously this could be changes in like neurotransmission, um, and we can think of this kind of stuff as like mood, your uh, ability to be able to con- concentrate, your uh, a state of alertness, uh, arousal, even things like motivation are going to be impacted by by this, and just overall like an athlete's essentially willingness to to dig let's call it so their their ability to persist through metabolic and mechanical uh pain so there's theories about this like central governor theory which basically you're trying to preserve the most important systems of your body which it has some limitations but generally speaking like that model holds up really well because it makes sense right when you're cold out (laughs) right there's a reason why your fingers and toes go numb because they're not as important as your your brain your heart and your lungs, right? It's the same thing. If you're rowing at a unsustainable pace, eventually you would get to the point where your, your brain, your cart, your respiratory tissue would get to the point where it's so low oxygen that it would stop functioning. If you stop functioning, you die, right? So obviously that's a super extreme example, but those are, that's the sort of idea that we're talking about here is that you can be limited in the amount that you're able to output just because your body is trying to protect the most important things to you. And we also need to keep in mind that, you know, as simple as it is, things like substrate use could play a role here. Like, for example, your brain uses about 20% of the glucose in your body when you're at rest. So again, you need to preserve the amount that you're actually having to give to that. So if you're running into things that are like you know, timed exhaustion or time trials that are really high uh, effort, then, you know, I think it would be naive to say that like those sort of things don't, don't play a role at all. All right, let's move on. Uh, Let's talk about how to monitor recovery. And I talked about this a little bit more in depth in episode number 33, uh, where I talked about readiness to train and how I actually measure that in the athletes that I coach. So if you're someone who's a a coach and and you want to kind of hear about how I monitor that, I would go back and listen to number 33. But the things that I track on a daily or weekly basis uh, for, for my athletes is, you know, just training quality, right? Their session scores, um, their average sleep quality and quantity, just their overall accumulated fatigue level. And that's just something that we go off perception with. 
their nutrition quality, uh, things like mechanical distress. So like how are, how are their joints holding up, which is a, an important thing to, to track in CrossFit, especially and, uh, overall stress levels. Uh, and again, if we think about just that, those are the most important things to monitor recovery, but they're also the highest leverage things that you can use to think about how to improve recovery as well. Again, it's like performance is sleep is nutrition is their stress levels is their pain levels. Those things are like probably the most important things that you can think about in terms of trying to improve and accelerate your recovery process. So again, if we just go back to how to improve recovery, I would say the, the least effective tools are the things that are like what I would call like quote unquote feel good modalities. So they get you perceiving that you're in less pain, they get you feeling better, but it's really not creating any lasting change. Um, and again, it's not to say that these things don't have any value or don't have any place, they're just lower leverage items. So things like putting on, on ice, like on a local tissue, again, like icing your knees, again, long-term, is it a really good play? Probably not. However, if it can help you feel better and get you know your next session in with higher quality, is it worth it? Maybe, right? Um, things like a TENS unit, right? Which are going to be basically change your uh, pain signaling. Again, potentially some use to that. Getting foam rolling on like a sore muscle belly that it's like, oh, it feels a little bit better. I feel like I can get a little bit better range of motion and that's gonna help me improve my, my movement and have less compensation when I go into my next session. Again, could be useful. Even things like ibuprofen, right? All those things can have a role it's just, I think they should have less of a role than they often do. So things that I think as the, the highest leverage items, and you can probably tie back each of these to the things that I track with my athletes. Number one is to train under your MRV, your max recoverable volume. So again, this is a theoretical, it's a concept. Uh, it's not something that you can necessarily measure super accurately, but it's something that you can think about and keep in mind, right? If you are training more than you can handle, you're always going to have a recovery deficit and you're always going to be sort of digging yourself in a hole. Whereas if you go on the opposite side of that and you're just under that all the time and leaving just a little bit in the tank, most of your training sessions that allows for you to feel more recovered and probably adapt a lot quicker. And again, if we're thinking about it as a theoretical concept, sort of shortening that SRA curve stimulus recovery adaptation, right? So there's less stimulus, you can probably shorten that uh, SRA curve. Again, that's all sort of theory based. Um, it doesn't work exactly like that because uh, fatigue and fitness are gonna be built at different rates. Uh, but it's just something to think about. So training under your master recoverable volume, um, just limiting the amount of total volume that you're actually doing and the intensity of that work is going to even be important. Again, it's not to say that you couldn't go into uh, like overreaching phases sometimes with an athlete. It's not to say that. However, as a general thought, as something to kind of monitor, train less than you can actually recover from. It's a good idea. Next is to sleep more, right? Just spend more time in bed, total time in bed, total testosterone, like those things are directly correlated and linked. So the more time that you can spend in bed is obviously gonna be helpful, but even the time that you do spend in bed, increasing the quality of that sleep. So having better sleep efficiency. So when you're in bed, to have a greater percentage of that time to be when you are actually asleep. That's important. Um, however, you can also do a lot of things that are like sleep hygiene related, where basically you can uh, have a better entry point or exit point to your sleep so that you can actually spend more time asleep when you're in bed 
and be waking up feeling more rested and having better sleep architecture. So basically like the waveforms of your sleep, if you were to look at it and study it, would actually mimic more uh, towards what would be optimal and that you're making sure you're hitting all the different stages of that sleep so that you can actually be recovering all the different systems that you need. So train under your MRV, sleep more <laughs> and sleep better, right? Next I would say would be eat well. So this goes back to two things as it always does, the quantity and the quality. So your amount of total calories that you're consuming, your macronutrients, your carbs, fat, and proteins, are you getting enough of that raw materials that you actually need to be able to have your body recover and to be able to create horsepower uh, the next day? However, that's not enough, right? You still need to be able to have all of your cells functioning properly, to have the uh, the proper uh, like immune system functioning that you need, and a lot of that comes back to micronutrients. So, micronutrients in terms of making sure that you're getting a big variety of foods, that you're eating enough uh, fruits and vegetables, that you're getting enough uh, variety in terms of like your color in your foods, basic things like that that often athletes don't do well enough because they're just trying to get the volume and just hit their macros. Um, those things are super important. So, making sure that you're getting both the quantity and the quality. And that way it also allows you to avoid a lot of the inflammation that comes along if you're just trying to hit your macros and you're not paying attention to the quality of the food that you're actually eating. So making sure the quality and the quantity of the food is there. Train under your MRV, sleep well, eat well. <laughs> Next, and I think, again, this is probably one of the most important things, is just limiting the number of stressors that you have outside of your, your training. So. One of the simplest things you can do here is have a clear endpoint to your training. So things like NSDR protocols, non-sleep deep rest, right? Where you're basically doing progressive mus muscle relaxation. You're doing breathing protocols. You know, often I'll have my athletes do parasympathetic breathing where it's often a one to two inhale to exhale. So for example, it might be a three second inhale, a six second exhale, things like that really help you to shift into that parasympathetic state sooner. And again, even if you give this to someone at rest, they're probably going to improve their HRV over like that, that five course of five minutes, right? If you watch someone's HRV, and I've actually done this with uh, several of my athletes, I look at their HRV before they do an SDR protocol and after, and it's like the, the waveforms are completely different. Like the scores are completely different. So that's one of the easiest things that you can do. And it only takes maybe five minutes. Do some breathing at the end of your uh, session have the eyes closed, be as relaxed as you can, and basically create a hard endpoint to that training. I would also say that in terms of limiting stressors outside of training, this goes back to the basics, right? It goes back to someone's relationships. Do they have the support they need? Do they feel loved, right? Are they having relationship stress, right? If they're going through a breakup, if they're having marital issues, right? Those sort of things are going to deeply impact their training, right? As anyone knows who's gone through that sort of thing, like you can't give the athlete the same amount of volume if they're experiencing something like that. So the less stress that they have outside of that, for example, if someone has a, a high stress job where they're working in the ER and they're uh, you know a nurse or something, and that's that's a really stressful thing, and they have crazy hours and all that stuff. That's a completely different situation than if we have someone and their only stress in their life is surrounding training. Right? They're like a kid. They're single. They don't have a lot of responsibilities. Right, and they essentially can just go train all the time. That's an ideal scenario for them having the best, basically, recovery and adaptation rate that they possibly can. So that was limit stress outside of training. 
Next would be to train sub-maximally. So this is different than I think training under your MRV because I think this is more about intensity related. So, and again, this is gonna vary based on the time of year for the athlete, but basically allowing the person to just start to accumulate quality work versus always focusing on going as hard as they possibly can. So the recovery demands when you're going a little bit under your ceiling is just so much less. And it allows you to pay attention to some of the factors of your training that often get skipped, like the quality, like the efficiency and the economy of the movement they're actually doing, making sure that you're moving really well. <laughs> and again, that creates less joint stress. It creates less metabolic stress. It creates less hormonal stress. There's a whole bunch of ripple effects from that. Training submaximally, I think, is something that more people should incorporate, especially as they're further away from their competitive season. Next is limit joint abuse. This is as simple as just moving well, right? If you don't move well, you're going to have more joint stress. If every time you squat, your knees come in and kiss each other, right? You're going to have more wear and tear on your joints as a result of that, right? If you catch a clean and it's really, you know, crashing on top of you, that's a different amount of joint stress than if you have a really smooth entry point and you catch it high and you ride it out, for example. So the less eccentric loading that you have, the more biomechanically sound that you move, um, the less amount of bounding that you have. Again, I'm not saying you should always try to limit these things. It's just something to pay attention to. It's going to reduce the amount of uh, joint irritation that you have and accelerate recovery as a result. Next is moving more. So this is absent from exercise. So exercise is one thing. I would consider this to be a different category of movement. This is just activity level. So your baseline amount that you're actually moving, if you increase that for most people, that's gonna improve their aerobic functioning, it's gonna improve the amount of circulation that they have, it's going to move their joints through ranges of motion that they often don't use as much in training, and it's gonna allow them to feel a whole lot better earlier on. And this can be as simple as walking, right? I often prescribe walking for people who have hip and back um, shoulder stuff going on, but also just gets them outside. It gets them exposing to the sun for a lot of people. Um, it might get them out of bed in the morning and start to, to move around at an earlier point in their day. All those things are super important and allow for an athlete to feel better and to recover faster because of that. And the final point here is to understand your why. There is a big difference between an athlete who has a very deep understanding of their why and an athlete who is just sort of going through the motions. The amount of sustained motivation that an athlete is going to have when they are deeply connected and rooted to their, their why, whatever that is, is going to just be so much higher, right? They are going to be willing to dig so much deeper on a daily basis. And even if they don't feel 100%, they're going to come in and be willing to do it again sooner than the athlete who doesn't have that deep connection uh, to why they're doing what they're doing. So you have to really, truly need it. Right? You have to have a reason why you want to get better, why you need to recover, why you need to be stronger, fitter, faster. There needs to be a very clear understanding of why you want to do that. And then I would say you need to couple that with all of the other things that will help unblunt your CNS basically, right? To clear back a lot of the accumulated fatigue and allow you to express your best fitness more frequently is going to allow you to hit that ceiling closer to your potential more frequently and you're going to adapt more quickly to that work that you're putting in. 
So today, I hope that I gave you a new framework about how to think about recovery as maximizing systems. Thanks for listening today. If you're someone who just found the show, I would encourage you to subscribe so you can stay up to date. If you're someone who's been listening for a while and enjoying what you're hearing, I would encourage you to leave a rating or review for the show. It would definitely help us out. And lastly, if you're someone who does take your fitness seriously and cares about your performance deeply, I would encourage you to look into hiring one of our coaches. Until next time, stay the course.